Hello all, and welcome back. This is Death by Ignorance. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting the program. I'm sorry this episode is a little late. It was factors beyond my control, and that's the truth. If you'd like to look like a really, really smart ape, by the way, consider wearing a Death by Ignorance t-shirt or drinking from a Death by Ignorance mug. You can even drive a Death by Ignorance supercar, but you'll have to check out the show notes for details. This is episode 15, The Assassination of Truth. Do you ever find yourself wondering what happened to telling the truth? I know I do. When I was growing up and starting at a very young age, it was expected that I would tell the truth. And telling lies, which was something I did a lot, was the most certain way to unleash the wrath of parents and teachers and those terrifying nuns that ran my primary school, gulag, as you will. There was very little ambiguity. We all knew the difference between the truth and a lie. To reinforce this clear distinction between right and wrong, I'd be reminded constantly that it didn't matter if I was able to get away with telling a few fibs here in the earthly realm, because God was keeping tabs of every one of them, and in the final reckoning, I would almost certainly be thrown into the fiery bowels of hell to suffer unendurable agonies for all of eternity. And that was for pinching a packet of sweeties. You have got to be kidding me. Anyway, I wasn't a good little boy more of a thieving master rascal, but I still somehow left boyhood with a crystal clear understanding that honesty and truthfulness were fundamental. They were going to be fundamental to live in any kind of a good life, maintaining relationships, getting ahead in school or at work, and contributing to a healthy society. And I still believe every word of that. Untruthfulness hurts the liar, and it hurts the lied too. It corrodes relationships, divides societies, and has the power to undo even democracy. This isn't an original position. Great intellects down the ages have been warning us about the consequences of discarding this most basic ethical standard. Ask anybody over four years of age, which is better, lying or telling the truth? So if truthfulness is some kind of moral foundation, a fundamental element of everything good and decent, then where the hell is it? I know I'm not alone when I worry about our society's changing relationship with the truth. We seem to be sinking up to our necks in some kind of post-truth cesspit. It feels like our threshold to lie for personal gain has fallen to the point that people are justifying outright dishonesty for the most trivial of reasons. We lie to get jobs or to sell cars or to get a discount at the supermarket or an extra $50 tax refund or even a better parking place. But are these intuitions accurate? Are we lying more? Or are we just more conscious of deception than we used to be? Is the concept of the post-truth ethic real? 
Let's examine the evidence and see if we can sort out precisely what is going on with truth at the beginning of the 21st century. Before we get started, I'm going to be limiting much of this discussion to one specific type of untruthfulness, but I think it might be helpful for me to give you a little background about the other types. For the sake of this discussion, I'm going to split deception up into three rough categories, and that's just for the sake of this discussion. The first is what I'm going to call macro deception. It's a category of deception that usually happens on a pretty grand scale. It involves the careful creation of new fictions or shared stories with the power to elicit cooperation among large groups of people, often from disparate cultures and at great distances. Currency, money, is the example we'll look at. The second type of dishonesty, uh, the one I'm going to call micro-deception, is typified by the normal lie. The primary difference between the macro-deception and micro-deception is that the former is transparent, while the latter is usually opaque. Another way to think about the difference between the two is that macro-deception tends to cause widespread voluntary cooperation. Whereas with micro-deception, the goal is usually some flavor of exploitation, manipulation, or subjugation of the lied to by the liar. And this is mostly what I'll be talking about today. The third category of deception is habitual dishonesty. This is a special case that doesn't fit neatly into either of the other two categories because it usually has no specific goal and is more a reflection of the pathological liar's disordered mind. The pathological liar makes false and misleading statements for no apparent reason and may even be unaware of his or her fabrications. Our current president is such a pathological liar. Um, while a great many of his lies are absurd and of no consequence, they still have the potential to cause great harm. I'm not going to say much more about this category of untruthfulness, at least in this discussion. When I talk about the problem of a post-truth society, I'm talking about the apparent explosion of micro-deception in business and politics and virtually every other facet of human interaction. I think it would be helpful, though, to start out by taking a quick but closer look at macro-deception, partly because of the inevitable overlap between the two categories, but also to give some historical perspective to today's state of affairs. As we shall see, dishonesty, untruthfulness, lying, call it what you will, hurts people, and it hurts society. So why does it seem to be such an integral part of humanness? That's probably because it's been part of human affairs from the very beginning. One of the most remarkable characteristics of the human race is our ability for one individual or group to cooperate in highly complex ways through consensual agreement with other members of the race, even when separated by great distances or vastly different cultures. 
The tool that makes this possible is often nothing more than an exquisitely crafted, carefully maintained, and widely shared story. Our ability to make up and spread these shared stories has been an absolutely crucial tool in mankind's struggle to tame the planet. Indeed, most of our most cherished institutions have been built on make-believe of one sort or another. Without these shared fictions, it would not have been possible for human beings to organize and cooperate, at least not to the extent and at the pace that it happened. Currency is one of the better examples of a shared fiction that changed everything. Take the dollar bill, just not my dollar bill. The intrinsic value of the dollar bill is negligible, a fraction of a fraction of a cent. And certainly, it's a great deal less than one dollar. But thanks to a very complicated and elegant work of fiction, we, as in everyone, imbue that scrap of fabric with some very powerful qualities. We all agree that a dollar bill is sufficiently valuable to be exchanged for a pint of milk, say, though I actually have no earthly idea how much a bottle of milk sells for. I don't drink the stuff, but you get the point. Try getting your corner shop to give you a bottle of milk in exchange for any other scrap of fabric. You won't get very far. We've created this story, and we believe in it completely because it's such a powerful and versatile tool. The dollar's just a token, an IOU, a promise from the issuer that the piece of paper represents and can be exchanged for something with a tangible value, like gold or milk. Gold is actually just another part of the same fiction and really lacks much of the intrinsic value it claims. But for now, let's assume that it does have intrinsic value. The dollar is no longer backed by gold. The story changed when the U.S. abandoned the gold standard for a fiat debt-backed currency. And that doesn't change the point that the money is a fiction. Its power lies in the fact that we've all agreed to believe in the same fiction. And this is what I mean by the ability of a fictional story to drive human cooperation. The underlying reality may suddenly become apparent when we decide that the story is no longer believable. Look at the value of the Deutschmark as Germany struggled to recover in the aftermath of the Second World War. As hyperinflation set in, the value of the currency plummeted so severely that it ended up approaching its intrinsic value. And at that low level of value, a loaf of bread could cost a wheelbarrow full of printed money. So currency is one example of how a well-crafted fiction can create unimaginable cooperation among humans across the globe. An even more compelling example of how stories combined large sections of society is that of religion. Religions are built around the entirely fictional stories found in holy texts. Let's take the Bible, for example. This holy text is a collection of writings that have been attributed to a number of different human authors from different time periods. 
The sheer number of contradictions and factual errors should put to rest any consideration that these books were in fact written by a single author, let alone an omniscient one. But for the sake of this discussion, I'll overlook the glaring evidence to the contrary and grant that the Bible is in fact the inerrant word of God. My example still holds, though, as the other world religions also have their holy books, their own contradictory yet inerrant words of God. And they can't both be true. So at least half, though in reality it's probably all, of the world's religious are basing their worldview on a fiction. But no one can deny the might of such stories when it comes to aligning entire populations of individuals. The power of such man-made fictions can't be denied. Whether they're a good thing uh, is another question altogether. I was reading Yuval Noah Harari's latest book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, in which he analyzes religion's use of shared stories. And while I found his comments to be very illuminating and interesting, I was rather put off by his interpretation of the net positive impact of religion that resulted from these stories. Where he focused on the community-building power of shared religious fictions, the stories as a source of joy for their adherents, and the contributions of these tales to creativity and art, I was inclined to see the same fictions as a tool for controlling congregants, a license for inhumane and barbaric practices, and really the root cause of much of our planet's dark history of exploitation, imprisonment, and wholesale murder. The stories of religion are indeed powerful, especially to those inclined to read deep meaning into them. But for every school or hospital these stories have inspired, how many death camps, suicide bombings, pogroms, and crusades did they inspire? I don't question the power of these shared myths to bring together huge numbers of people, but I can't ignore the elephant in the room, that the end result of creating these shared fictions is often just the exclusion of everyone else. These are just a couple of examples of macro deception. Shared fictions lie at the heart of virtually all of our institutions, from civic groups to political parties and everything in between. We shouldn't be surprised, given our history with institutionalized storytelling, that micro deception has become woven into the fabric of humanity. We are very adept deceivers. Studies have shown that children as young as four years of age use rudimentary deception to gain advantage over their contemporaries. Add some more advanced language skills, and these sneaky little toddlers are soon quite accomplished liars. Or at least I was. So, what about lying? One of the most commonly encountered forms of micro-deception is the lie. And it may be helpful for us to take a peek under the hood of lying. A lie is a deliberate deceptive message. And to qualify as a lie, the liar must know the message is false. 
you'll immediately recognize that this definition of a lie doesn't require that the deception is intrinsically damaging to the recipient, leaving the door open to the possibility of good lies. While I think it's fair to say that most non-sociopaths would agree that the practice of lying is, in general, a bad thing, most of us would also be likely to agree that there are a great many exceptions. It's in how we pass these exceptions, how we justify and excuse the deception, that lying becomes very complicated very quickly. What then are the ethics of lying? Classically, there are two general approaches to thinking about the ethics of untruthfulness. The first approach is consequentialism, sometimes called utilitarianism, where the rightness or wrongness of a deceptive act is determined by the goodness or badness of the eventual outcome. A consequentialist like St. Augustine would find some deliberate acts of deception to be fundamentally right if the consequences of the lie, that is, were more favorable than the consequences of telling the truth. Say, for example, you're a German citizen living in Berlin at the height of the Nazis' anti-Semitic persecution, let's say in 1942. You have a German-Jewish family under your protection, living in secrecy in your basement. One day, you're visited by the SS and questioned concerning the whereabouts of the family. You tell the SS captain that you have no idea where the family is and that you haven't seen them in the last two months. The SS accept your answer and leave the house. One week later, you arrange for the family to be smuggled out of Berlin and out of Germany. They evade detection and eventually make their way to England and eventually on to the United States, where they're reunited with other family members who escaped Germany years earlier. The consequentialist would call this lie justifiable and ethically correct. I think most of us would agree. But this way of thinking about lying is not without its problems. Let me give you another example. You're hiding the same Jewish family, and as before, you're visited by the SS and asked about the location of the family. You answer with exactly the same lie as before, only this time the soldier doesn't believe you. He searches the house, finds the family in your basement, and arrests your family along with the Jewish family. The next day, all members of both families are put on a train and deported to a ghetto from which both families are sent to an Eastern European death camp six weeks later. The lie and the circumstances of the lie are identical, yet to the consequentialist, the same lie is now utterly inexcusable. This example highlights the core problem with the consequentialist argument. You can't judge the rightness or wrongness of a deception until the consequences are known. What use is an ethical position on lying if you can't use it to decide whether or not to lie? There are other problems with the consequentialist ethic. How is the relative goodness or badness of an outcome measured? And from whose perspective is the outcome judged? How can we compare the outcome of telling the lie to the outcome of not telling it? 
how do we select consequences that are relevant and how do we select those to be ignored? And finally, how long after the lie is told do we consider the consequences of importance? Depending on your interpretation of consequentialism, this approach to judging the merits of untruthfulness may not take into account fully the possible impact of telling a lie on the wider society. And there's another pitfall to consider. The potential liar is usually quite biased in favor of their own interests and will tend to give more weight to consequences that affect them directly. Underlying the argument in favor of utilitarianism or consequentialism is the belief that lying is generally a bad thing in that it causes harm to other people and because it somehow erodes the value of truthfulness. This belief is also held by the second group of thinkers, the deontologists. At the heart of the deontological approach to understanding deceitfulness is the belief that any act is either a right act or a wrong act. The consequences of the act are immaterial. This is a more rigid, rule-based way of thinking. Immanuel Kant was a German philosopher from the latter half of the 18th century, and he's probably one of the better-known examples of the archetypal deontological thinker from recent history. He held firmly to the position that lying is always wrong. Underlying this was his conviction that every human being should treat every other person as an end in itself, and not just a means to some other end. The liar, in Kant's way of thinking, deceived for the sole purpose of advancing his own goals, which meant that the one deceived was merely a means to the liar's end. Kant also maintained that a given act could only be construed as good if the act itself could constitute a universal law, like a law of human nature. To put this slightly differently, Kant was saying that if a lie could ever be considered good, then all lies would have to be good, because that's the way universal laws work. But because society would surely fall apart if everybody lied and we couldn't trust anyone, it wouldn't make for a very good universal law. So he deduced if lying is generally bad, it can't ever be good. Follow that? I can see why Eric Idle thought Kant was a real pissant and very rarely stable. And if that reference didn't register, please check the program notes. You'll be glad you did. Anyway, there are obviously a lot of problems with Kantian deontological thinking. As with any statement of fact that contains absolutes like every, always, none, and never, it immediately becomes the target for exceptions. And there are plenty of sections to the statement that lying is never good or right. In the first example of the German and Jewish families, it's fairly clear that some lies at least appear to be good and right, but only to the extent that the consequences later prove it to be so. Kant's belief that lying is always wrong only makes sense if the act is considered in the abstract and the real consequences of the act are ignored. So, in trying to sort out today's devaluation of the truth, 
it doesn't look like we're going to get much help from classical philosophy. So let's consider dishonesty from a different angle. When we say that lying is generally bad, what are we actually saying? Well, I'd suggest it's some combination of the following. Lying, especially doing so repeatedly, diminishes trust between the liar and the lied to. And at the level of society, the more we lie, the less we trust. A lack of trust, whether it's between two people or across all of society, creates tension and stress in relationships. Anyone who's experienced firsthand an untrusting relationship will understand immediately how such a condition degrades the quality of one's life. Lying devalues the person who's lied to. In lying to a person, we're implicitly telling the deceived that we don't care about them as a person, only as a tool that we can use to advance our own interests. This is another unsustainable destroyer of relationships, but it can also lead to serious long-term fallout for the person being used. Loss of self-esteem is one of those consequences. Lying makes it difficult or impossible for the person being lied to to make free and informed decisions about whatever the matter is in question. Or put another way, garbage in, garbage out. When your trusted homeopathist lies to you by telling you that carrot juice is the only effective treatment for your breast cancer, the likelihood of your choosing real medical care is diminished and your access to potential curative treatment may be dangerously delayed. For the religious, lying is considered to be a sin, and I'll leave it at that. So as you can see, there are quite a few ways in which individuals can hurt and be hurt through the commission of deception or the omission of the truth. As serious as these consequences may be, I believe that the damage wrought by society-level dishonesty or public dishonesty is far more worrying and deserves to be treated as a special case. When society is damaged by untruthfulness, the impact affects all of us. Even if we as individuals have nothing to do with the deceit, we're still at risk of being swept up into its consequences. And it's because of this risk of widespread societal damage that I worry so much about the casual disregard for the truth in today's world. When lying is taken up as a weapon by governments, corporations, churches, and any other powerful institutions, the impact on society is predictably destabilizing. When government-sanctioned lying becomes the rule rather than just a shameful exception, when our leaders flaunt their brazenness as if to reinforce a creed that power derives from dishonesty, the overall truthfulness of society is diminished. When influential corporations base their business model on disseminating false information to sell more widgets, and when their wealth soars on the backs of those lies, how can average consumers be expected to learn anything other than that lying pays? 
And when religions manipulate and control their followers by the convenient interpretation of words from a book of fiction, they're telling their congregants that the ends always justify the means. With every major influential institution abandoning all pretense of truthfulness, lying seems to be becoming generally accepted practice across much of society. Everyone's doing it, so it must be okay. This type of thinking, the tacit exception of deception as the new norm, will rapidly erode any residual trust in our institutions and eventually the trust between individuals. When this happens, the true nature of truth will become apparent. In a very real sense, truthfulness and the trust it engenders is the very glue that holds society together. It's as fundamental to the survival of society as oxygen is to the survival of ourselves. And what is accelerating this devolution of truthfulness in America? As I've described, the process of abandoning the truth is like an avalanche. The more widespread our tolerance of deception, the more enthusiastically it's adopted by others. And like an avalanche, it's bound to bury alive those at the base of the mountain. And it would be impossible to talk about the new norm of truthlessness without mentioning arguably the most influential liar on the planet. And that's our very own liar-in-chief, Donald No Collusion Trump. A few weeks ago, in another episode of this podcast, I cited data published by the Trump fact-checkers, and the numbers were staggering. But since then, the most powerful man on earth has dramatically picked up the pace. He's gone from making 14 false or misleading statements a day to making 22 of them. As of October the 9th, his lies numbered 14,435 over a period of just 993 days. This latest surge in our president's uh, deception is apparently a result of his desperation to confuse and mislead the public about his misbehavior in the Ukraine, along with his grasping at straws defense in the impeachment inquiry. The man is a habitual liar. He lies about anything and everything, and he does it so automatically, it's as if he believes he has the power to create new truth simply by uttering the words. In some ways, that's exactly what he's doing, at least from the perspective of his core group of diehard supporters. And that's a very disturbing development. To understand this bizarre phenomenon, we should step back and consider the post-truth political culture as a whole. On the surface, the politics of America today is qualitatively different than the politics of just three years ago. But in reality, the tactics deployed by the current administration have been around for a long, long time. The main reason it seems like a new phenomenon is that it's far more noticeable now, thanks to the 24-hour news bombardment and the internet. So, how should we define the post-truth political culture? Well, it's a lot like it sounds. The importance and even the relevance of facts and evidence are devalued. 
either by ignoring the facts entirely or writing them off as fake news. Once those inconvenient truths have been thrown out, the coast is clear for politicians to replace facts with emotional appeals. In the past, the mainstream press played a vital role in keeping this approach to politics under control. Journalists and their editors took the truth very seriously. They checked facts constantly, and they called out the liars and their lies in print. Sure, there have always been news outlets that were nothing more than partisan mouthpieces, but the integrity of the major news outlets could usually be relied upon for reasonably balanced and truthful reporting. This obviously is no longer the case, with some news outlets wrapping their arms around post-truth appeals to emotion with abandon. Fox News must be the worst offender, though CNBC, CNN and several big city newspapers are working diligently to catch up. But it would be a mistake to think of post-truth politics as an American problem. The same move away from expert opinion and verifiable fact is well underway in Russia, in India, in the United Kingdom, Brazil, and many other countries. And this shouldn't come as a surprise, given the ubiquity of rapid-fire news cycles, fake news, internet sites, social media, echo chambers, and unbalanced print reporting. One of the first authors to comment on this phenomenon was Ralph Keyes, who did so in his 2004 book, The Post-Truth Era. He described how the lie was no longer an inexcusable offense in the context of a media-driven world. In the same year, another author, Eric Alterman, was writing about the lies Bush was telling following 9-11. And it was he that coined the term post-truth politics. Another writer at the same time, Colin Crouch, used the term post-democracy to describe the carefully choreographed facade of public electoral debate. And he also described the political communication after 9-11 to have adopted what he called the advertising industry model. In the decade that followed, much has been written about professional political communications contribution to the growing crisis of trust, resulting largely from the strategic manipulation of public emotion. Before long, the term post-truth was in widespread use, being used to describe the 2014 uh, Canadian elections in Ontario and the Brexit referendum in the United Kingdom. A Harvard professor, Jennifer Hochschild, has described the post-truth character of modern politics and media as a return to the political environment of America during the 18th and 19th centuries. She believed that the relative balance of 20th century American politics and reporting was a transient phenomenon, now abandoned in favor of appeals to emotion. I think she's very probably correct. What does post-truth politics look like from down here in the real world? There are a few unmistakable characteristics, the most defining being the relentless repeating of talking points. Even when those talking points can be categorically dismissed on the basis of observed truth, If you're unclear about what this is, just turn on a television and watch the news. 
you'll hear the same points being regurgitated endlessly like a magical mantra to ward off the truth. There was no collusion. There was no quid pro quo, or EU membership is costing the country £350 million a week. They're just a few of the examples. Remember that all three of these statements, two from the Republican Party and the last one from the Brexit Vote Leave campaign, are demonstrably false. Yet the same tired false statements were dragged out every time a Republican or pro-Brexiter caught sight of a television camera, even long after the falsehood of the statements had been repeatedly verified. Another characteristic of post-truth politics in the same vein is the modification of talking points for political expediency, usually with a throaty denial that the prior version of the point had ever even been asserted. There was no Ukrainian quid pro quo. Right up until the moment, Director Mulvaney opened his sneering mouth and told the whole world that of course there was a quid pro quo. We do it all the time. Get over it. One nanosecond later, the new talking point wormed its way into public discourse. Now there was a quid pro quo, but it's not against the law. Michael Deacon, a journalist with the British newspaper The Daily Telegraph, boiled down the essence of post-truth politics into one pithy insight. Facts are negative. Facts are pessimistic. Facts are unpatriotic. Esquire's writer Jack Holmes added another dimension to the definition of post-truth by pointing out that if we don't know what's true, you can say whatever you like, and it's not a lie. That says it all. The Bertha movement, the Obama is a Muslim lie, and Pizzagate are all examples of the rotten fruit that falls from the tree of post-truth politics. In each case, the claims were utterly spurious, but with endless repetition by politicians and media outlets, the stories became massive, powerful, and destructive. These attacks could only happen in a post-truth environment, and that is why we should be very worried. Next, let's look at the peculiar set of circumstances that make this kind of politics possible. The first thing that comes to mind, of course, is the internet. This factor alone has a greater effect on the way we perceive our world than all the others combined. The explosive growth of the internet has effectively decentralized the dissemination of information. Prior to the internet, information was delivered to the public through large media outlets. These outlets, network television and radio stations, newspapers and magazines, were by and large recognized as the arbiters of the truth and driven by competition for readership, each sought to outdo the others by providing information that was more complete, more accurate, and more truthful. These were the days of in-depth, long-form articles and thoroughly researched content. The media were acting as gatekeepers, vetting the information that they put out to ensure that their readership was getting the best information available. 
But this infrastructure has crumbled under the combined weight of hundreds of thousands of internet-based information outlets. In this wild west of online news, anyone with a computer can contribute to the flow of information, with no sheriff to keep an eye on what's true and what's false. In this new era, anyone can find information that is consistent with their position. But they don't have to, because machine learning and other technological advancements have brought us algorithms that filter our content, ensuring we're never troubled by having to examine another point of view. These social media algorithms construct a wall around our worldview, entombing us in our own custom-built echo chambers. Another feature of social media as a source of information is how its design favors the widespread dissemination of content with the most likes, regardless of whether or not the information is factual. And this can have a profound effect on what's being read and shared. We should remember that a lie that is liked by a million people is still a lie. As the volume of chatter reaches deafening levels, our news is diluted into a toxic slurry of fact and fiction, flowing in every direction. We no longer have trusted authorities to help us sort out the wheat from the chaff, and the sheer volume of information that we're bombarded with has compressed attention spans down to seconds. Information overload has made us vulnerable to the propaganda that can be packaged into bite-sized memes and emotionally charged talking points. What used to be news has morphed into nothing more than tabloid infotainment. These internet-related developments have affected primarily the output of the post-truth politico-media machine, the way we consume the information. But what about the input? How has the political communications infrastructure changed to take advantage of the technology and maximize the impact of its influence? Political information peddlers have learned a great deal from cognitive science. They figured out that there are far more effective ways to influence the public than by offering them balanced and truthful political information from which they can develop their own position. These political communication consultants, also known as propagandists, have turned instead to managing the beliefs and perceptions of subsets of the population by targeting them with carefully formulated snippets of information that is often mixed in with misinformation, outright lies and rumors. The facts are irrelevant, remember? All that matters under this new post-truth paradigm is that the sheeple's beliefs are reinforced and amplified. So to sum up this concept, in the post-truth era, the facts don't matter, but the emotionally charged beliefs of the voters do. And this is reflected in the all-time low levels of public trust in today's news media. It also offers a clear explanation for the unprecedented political polarization of the post-truth era. Unsurprisingly, the post-truth phenomenon is not strictly confined to the political world. 
The same ploys are used by other groups whose central tenets are inconsistent with proven facts and so must disregard the truth and rely on appeals to emotion. The anti-vaccination and the anti-GMO movements are two such examples of post-truth science denialism. The passage of the Dietary Health Supplement and Educational Act in the U.S. in 1994 is another example of science denialism. Some authors have mentioned young earth creationism and the denial of evolution as a product of post-truth society. While such beliefs certainly bear some of the same characteristics of post-truth politics, I think this type of faith-based denial of science belongs in a separate category. The difference being that this is a bottom-up denialism. Creationists have not been externally manipulated into adopting such a belief system for some third party's political or financial gain. The post-truth political climate has also been co-opted by corporate interests in America. The tactics of the fossil fuel industry or the gun manufacturer's lobby and a host of other special interests have much in common with the government's post-truth strategies. Denial of factual information and loud repetition of invented, emotive talking points like climate change science is a conspiracy or they're coming to take your guns are a couple of perennial favorites. Any rational person who considers this issue seriously must surely conclude that a post-truth America is a profoundly bad idea. And to give you a personal example, I'm going to digress for just a minute. I haven't digressed any up to this point. But the reckless policies of our government have driven a wedge into our society, forcing individuals to pick a side and making calm, honest, constructive debate just about impossible. And I'm not talking about the insane partisanship of our governing institutions. I'm talking about the eradication of every inch of middle ground where respectable conversation used to take place, in cafes, on the street, at the barber shop. My example is this. I went out earlier today to take some photographs. I was walking around one of my town's loveliest parks, and I ran into an artist who was hard at work at her easel. She was finishing up a remarkable oil painting that powerfully captured the essence of our park, and I was really impressed. So I stopped to chat. Now, I live in the Deep South, in one of the reddest of red states, if not the reddest of red states. Casual conversation with strangers makes me nervous. That did not used to be the case. And it's not because I don't enjoy meeting new and interesting people, but because I've been on the receiving end of some aggressively hateful rhetoric over the last couple of years. It hasn't stopped me from talking to people I meet. I'm confident that my thick skin can take the occasional hit, but it's made me very careful about what I say. And that is what I hate most about the political climate. When I get into one of these discussions and the party talking points get rolled out right on cue, I feel a moral obligation to push back against the worst of it. 
And what upsets me most is just how close to the surface some of these people's anger is and how easily a stray comment can light the fuse. In the post-truth world, you can't question another man's politics any more than you can question his religious convictions. There are no facts left. It's all just white-hot emotion. As it happened, in this case, the lady with the paintbrush named Teresa was from New York City and she was more moderate than I and we had a pleasant chat. I hope you see my point. We need a place of civility where we can discuss politics and do so honestly, frankly, and without emotion. I was earlier stating the fact that no rational person would want to live in a world where they're being fed a steady diet of misinformation while their emotions are being manipulated by strangers whose only interest in them is their vote. That is what is most unnerving about our current position. By design, social media and illegitimate propagandist fake news outlets are micro-targeting population subgroups so effectively that the manipulated don't even know they're being used. They are unwitting pawns in a political power struggle that they can't comprehend. And I don't know if this kind of damage can be undone. Maybe it can but not with the government we have now. And I don't mean just Trump or the Republican Party. It's certainly true that post-truth politics is not going to change with Trump and his cronies in the White House. But we need to make sure that it does change when he's out, because I fear that that's not going to be easy. Because our government, whether it be red or blue, takes its marching orders from corporate oligarchs. The deep, festering corruption that's been in Washington long before Donald showed up on the scene is still going to be there. There is literally no incentive for the power elite to reverse their position on post-truth. Lying is just working too well. We have to wake up and pay attention to what's going on in our country and around the world. It's an unavoidable fact of modern life that the truth can only take the power-hungry so far. At some point, the lies become absolutely necessary for political advancement. It's a race to the bottom, with each side of any political struggle inventing ever more made-up outrage to undo the lies from the other side. The fact that outrages are manufactured is justified because they're a means to a much greater end, your vote. Know this, if we weren't gobbling up every scrap of this tripe to drive our own outrage, the power of institutionalized deception would evaporate overnight. Until we take personal responsibility for our vital role in making this horror show possible, until we stop rising to the bait like mindless automata, nothing will change. 
we need to stop acting like gullible suckers because the end of this dark road is not a place that we want to go. There are a number of reasonable steps, we could call it damage control, that we can and should be taking right now. These aren't impossible tasks, but they will take coordination and the will of the voting public to pull it off. There are a few ideas where we might begin. Firstly, we need to do something about social media. We need to incorporate all of the safety features, the checks and balances that Twitter, Facebook, and the other platforms failed to hardwire into their infrastructure when the platforms were built. A good place to start would be with fact-checking. We either have or soon will have the technology to build real-time fact-checking into all of these platforms. The news consumer must be given the tools to sort out the truth from the lies. Of course, whatever this tech solution would look like, it would need to be administered and managed by trusted gatekeepers. When I state my concerns that things may already have passed the point of no return, this is what I'm talking about. In such a polarized society, which people or institutions would even be recognized as an authority? The flagrantly anti-scientific agendas of the religious right have severely compromised the credibility of the scientific community, possibly to the point that they wouldn't even recognize a science-based gatekeeper. No reasonable person would trust this government to have any involvement whatsoever in the fact-checking process. They are, after all, the source of most of the lies and propaganda. Involving the government in the process would virtually guarantee the censorship of the press. We could let the social media platforms themselves act as gatekeepers. No, we couldn't. That was a joke. Building a credible, reliable, safe, and universally accepted fact-checking algorithm and organizing the experts to manage the process, I recognize, is a massive hurdle. But it could be done. News outlets, large and small, should be incentivized on the basis of the truthfulness and accuracy of what they publish. They should also be censured when they fail to maintain a certain standard. Another good first step should be to involve our scientific researchers and thought leaders in the information dissemination infrastructure. I've talked about this many times in several other contexts, but the idea that social media outlets can deny responsibility for the torrents of spurious pseudoscientific mumbo-jumbo that fill our news feeds is anathema. These platforms must eventually be held to account for the misinformation that they disseminate. And one way to move them towards accepting some responsibility would be by involving the wider scientific community in their algorithm development. I find it hard to believe that we, meaning humans, have created the most advanced communications infrastructure imaginable just so that we can spread fake news and pseudoscience from sea to shining sea. It really irks the hell out of me that we're using this incredible technology to make people 
less informed and to dumb the country down. It seems like such a basic concept, one that even that Zuckerberg twerk could understand. To use this brilliant technology to inform and enrich the lives of millions. The, the fact that they have not done so has to make you wonder if it isn't deliberate. They tell us we're just a platform. We aren't a news outlet. We don't write stuff. We just spread it around. All that is nonsense and utterly disingenuous. A disturbing number of people in this country get all their news from Facebook and other just platforms. And that, in my book, makes them de facto news outlets. Before I pop an aneurysm, let's move on. What else could or should we be doing? Much though it hurts me to say so, we need to get the government involved in the activities of these mega companies. I wholeheartedly believe that the government, especially this government, needs to stay the hell away from my computer. But it's getting to the point that government oversight may be the lesser of two evils. In case you hadn't noticed, this country is tearing itself apart. And you don't have to be a genius to see how the internet, along with television, radio, print news, and even user content like this podcast, is a major contributor to tribalism, rabid partisanship, and the spread of hate. We've got to hold ourselves to a higher standard, Mark, and if we don't, the government is going to have to do it for us. Let me make one thing absolutely clear. I am not advocating for censorship of any kind, ever. The individual's right to free speech can't be violated. But we have to take a stand against the weaponization of misinformation for financial or political gain. If every spurious claim that has been refuted by legitimate evidence was simply highlighted or flagged in some way to caution the reader that the validity of this claim is disputed, if the sources were accurately cited, we'd have a place to start. Calling a lie a lie is not censorship. We need to be treating the ethical slippage of post-truth politics and the use of propaganda as a matter of national and global security, because that's exactly what it is. Taking a momentary detour, the use of misinformation for profit is another serious problem that has seemingly worsened in the post-truth political environment. False advertising may not threaten us with the same degree of existential danger that does government-sanctioned lying, but it's high time we started enforcing the laws of the country when it does occur. I had a really late night working one day last week. When I was finally at a stopping point, I was too wound up to sleep right away, and I turned on the television set, which is something I hardly ever do. I can't remember the program that was on, but I remember all of the advertising. Apparently, when it gets really late, the networks roll out all the advertising that they don't want to show us during the day. Every other ad, and there were a lot of ads, was for some financial service or product. About half of them were debt consolidation scams. 
the ads were telling anyone still up, probably up because they were too worried about their credit card debt to sleep, that all they had to do was make one phone call and this company would take care of their debt for them. They wouldn't get any more collection threats or harassing phone calls. But at no point did they mention the fact that the customers would be taking out big loans. They didn't mention the terms of the loan, the annual percentage rate or the penalties. No, they only said what they needed to say to trick the unwitting public to call in to their mothership, which is kind of like inviting a vampire into your house. And the later it got, the more I felt like I was watching an episode of Better Call Saul with ads for reverse mortgage scams, annuities, supplemental insurance rackets, and on and on and on. Then a soft drink commercial came on. Beautiful, tanned, athletic specimens romping on the beach with gay abandon. All made possible by the cans of cold, fizzy corn syrup that they were slurping down like there was no tomorrow. The message was clear as a bell. This is what people who drink our soda look like. Buy a case of the stuff and be like them. I get that they wouldn't sell quite as much of their product if they showed a 400-pound diabetic double amputee in a wheelchair sucking down one of their 36-ounce ultra-mega-sized plastic barrels of the stuff. But just because your product is a scam or a health hazard doesn't mean you get to lie about it. So to wrap up, let me just say this. The new style of targeted, exploitative, manipulative propaganda has wormed its way into every corner of American life. The internet, social media, the partisan news outlets, and the tabloidized print media are amplifying the lies and manipulating the public with algorithmic micro-targeting. We're becoming unmoored from reality and truth at an alarming rate. Coming full circle, I think I have an answer to my original question. Is the truth in danger of extinction? Yes, it is. The truth is becoming irrelevant in modern society, and this is why. Our descent into today's dystopian culture of deceit is an inevitable consequence of end-stage capitalist excess and the far-left's shrill moral panic. The polarization of America that has become palpable over the last few decades is a direct result of the increasingly hyperbolic rhetoric being spewed endlessly by the out-of-control, virtue-signaling left and the xenophobic, power-hungry right. And as the stakes get higher, the rift expands, and for both sides, the ends justify the means. The reality lies somewhere in the middle, a place we can't seem to get to anymore. And because the facts don't support the exaggerated claims of either extreme, new facts are needed. With the internet-amplified ideological struggles becoming more desperate with every passing day, both sides need ever more outrageous facts to justify their fury. This is where all the garbage news headlines and clickbait banners come from. 
And yes, there is more of this putrid stink than ever. So while we're sitting around waiting for our leaders to stop acting like petulant preteens and start doing something, anything, about this serious threat to our democracy and to our national security, why don't we start calling out the lies when we hear them? Why don't we suppress our partisan inclinations for just a few moments and act like responsible adults whenever we hear these vicious lies, whatever their source? Tell your representatives that you aren't going to sit around while our country burns around us. Don't vote for a liar. Don't spread the lies. Don't let yourself be manipulated. Unless and until we the people get off our spoiled tails and speak up, this problem isn't going anywhere. Leave it long enough and we will pass a point of no return. And when that happens, don't come whining to me that you don't like the new dictatorship because it'll be your own damn fault. Good night.